On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Today, aside from being uh, Father's Day, the 18th of June, it also marks the anniversary of Sean T. O'Kelly becoming President of Ireland. And in a sense, he was Ireland's first elected president, at, at least at the ballot box, because the guy who came before him hadn't actually been elected by anybody, uh, at least at the ballot box sense. His time in the Oris was also transformative for Ireland's place on the world stage. It was under his watch that Ireland became, at least officially, a republic, uh, which made him the first recognised head of state uh, in a way far beyond that of his predecessor, um, Douglas Hyde. Um, Donald Fallon, as ever, is here to tell us all about it. Uh, Donald, fair to say that by the time he became president, Sean T. O'Kelly, already a, a long-time veteran. Pretty amazing life. Uh, the son of a bootmaker who went on to become the president of Ireland. And yeah, w- what a life. And really, I think there's two great political chapters as we get into today uh, in the life of Sean T. O'Kelly. Firstly, he was a, a councillor in Dublin Corporation in the early years of the 20th century. Sinn Féin councillor before anyone in a London newspaper had ever heard the words <laughs> Sinn Féin. Uh, and then secondly, you know, his time uh, in, in the Oris. But, you know, it would be a, a particularly cruel table quiz to ask who was the first Irish president elected by the people. Because, yeah. you know, anyone who goes, political yeah. anorex, even yeah. like us, would say... Douglas Hyde was the first Douglas president. Hyde was the first president. And he was the first president. And, and Hyde was a fitting and deeply symbolic choice. Uh, but, you know, Hyde was chosen by the, the parties of the day, if you will. Shanti O'Kelly was the first person who had to go to the ballot box to the Irish people and say... I want to be president of Ireland. Just to rewind back then and talk about Hyde for a minute. Um, Hyde, um, very symbolic because he was a Protestant as well as all his involvements and everything else. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, still very symbolically important that he was president, even though there was no ballot box involved. Yeah, he was like the, the elder statesman of the cultural revival, you know. And, and, and Michael D. Higgins has spoken very beautifully in recent times about Douglas Hyde. He says the legacy of Hyde can be found in his expansive vision of cultural democracy. It was from the people he learned the Irish language, collected our folk folklore and manuscripts, it was to the people he looked for the regeneration of Irish culture, a culture sustained by an ancient inheritance, but alive to new forms and innovations and to all the possibilities and potentials of the future. That's like a, That's just a, really a beautiful nice, yeah. AI-generated Michael D. Higgins yes. kind of speech, isn't it? That at least is a Michael D. comment that isn't going to get him in trouble, <laughs> unlike what a, we've already been talking about. A marvellous, marvellous speech as ever by Michael D. Higgins there. And Hyde was respected for all he'd done for the language movement. Uh, he was a spark. You might even say he was the spark of the cultural revival. But he was also someone, I mean, I think one, one reason he was broadly popular was he tried to kind of stop political splits in the ranks of the language movement. He eventually walked away from it because he thought it was becoming too uh, political. And, you know, our, our American friends in politics, they love to use this term now, nonpartisan. That's yeah. kind of what Douglas Hyde is, you know, when he's chosen as the first president. He's non-partisan. He's broadly respected by everyone. As you said, he's the son of a Church of Ireland clergyman. That doesn't hurt, you know, with the image that the new state uh, is trying to project. Mm. And he goes to the Oris without a single public vote. But I think it's fair to say with the full support of, of the people behind them. There's an interesting question here, which sounds very cerebral, but which is actually quite quite an important one when you think just about the fabric of the office that he was holding. What exactly was he president of? That's a mad thing, right? Because the Ireland Hyde as president of isn't yet a republic. We're still within the framework of, of the free state. There's a symbolic oath of allegiance going into the parliament. You know, we're basically a Commonwealth nation. So the head of state within such an arrangement wasn't sitting in the Phoenix Park. And not that anyone wanted to hear it, but technically, you know, the head of state was arguably the British king. So it was all mm. a little bit peculiar, a little bit odd. Uh, he's even sitting up in the Vice Regal Lodge, you know, former yes. resident of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Uh, and some people post-independence are actually arguing for its demolition. Now, thankfully, they didn't succeed. It's demolition and replacing it with a new residency for for the president. Oh, because the, the existing Vice Regal Lodge was too tainted in, in colonial history. Yeah, and architecturally was, you know, was, was yesterday's man as far as they were concerned. But then... <laughs> 
you know, Douglas Hyde, someone who'd been kind of out of the political revolution in the early 20th century. You couldn't say that about the guy who followed him. I mean, Shanti O'Kelly, uh, he became nat- National Secretary of the Gaelic League in the aftermath of Hyde resigning from it in 1915. Hyde was uncomfortable with the kind of language that was being spoken by young people like you know, Patrick Henry Pierce and others. <laughs> he felt that this thing was moving towards violence. You know, in that sense, he was proven to yeah, be correct. Yeah. Uh, he'd walked away. But it was people like Shanti O'Kelly who stepped into the breach afterwards. And Shanti, also a founding member of, of Sinn Féin in 1905, elected councillor for them from, from 1908. Now, they may not have been the biggest party in Irish life. And this is the, the, the 1905 Sinn Féin we're talking about. But they were still knocking on the door and they were still quite active for a long time before the rising comes along. Yeah, it's one of the great misconceptions, you know. And I, I, I often said, this on record myself in the past and later learned it was it was wrong but I can even remember in school we are told that the, the rising had been this unpopular thing uh, the leaders were executed the press called it the Sinn Féin Rebellion and then Sinn Féin were kind of propelled to the top of politics afterwards Yeah, yeah. but actually you know, they were knocking around for a long time they might not have been in Westminster politics but there was a big Sinn Féin presence for example in Dublin Corporation and the reason for that was you know the townships the, the kind of middle class had walked away you know they'd gone to Rap Mines and Pembroke they set up their own little town councils. Yeah, you, know, you were now entering free rap mines, <laughs> whatever it may <laughs> on be. the gable ends. But yeah. they they had gone away from the city council, so that that meant. So basically, these... they'd vacated the turf, and that the exactly. city, the, the corporation exactly. was left only to represent the working class areas, which only had Sinn Fein representatives. So the unionists had walked away, so you ended up with a council that had you know loads of like labour representatives and a whole variety of independents and even even Sinn Fein representatives. So. They are a thing in local politics. They're not a massive thing, but anyone who's following politics on the ground in Ireland you know, knew who, who, who they were. And W.T. Cosgrave, who goes on to become basically the first Taoiseach in all but name, mm. he's a Sinn Féin councillor. Shanti O'Kelly is a Sinn Féin councillor. And O'Kelly remembers what it was like at the time. This is a great description of politics. He says, during the spring and summer 1906 and 07, we frequently went out in the public streets in places like Drumcondra, Glasnevin, Terenure, Inchicore and similar places and spoke from a break, sometimes on a chair borrowed from a house in the vicinity and preached the gospel of Sinn Féin. We explained <laughs> to the people the purpose of our main objective was to withdraw the Irish members of Parliament from Westminster. We preached self-reliance as the means towards the winning of the complete independence of Ireland. We were enthusiastic supporters of the Irish Ireland movement and those of us who could always addressed their audiences in part of our speeches at any rate in Irish. I love the idea of a future president just standing on a chair, you know, in <laughs> yeah. Drumcondra or in Chicor, trying to convince the people to back this new party. It's also just very striking to hear the Sinn Féin project of, no, elect us and we'll pull out of Westminster and we'll set up our own little one instead. And they're espousing that as early as 1906, long before mm. December 18, when they get to finally do it. Um, O'Kelly had one of the most important jobs during the Rising um, because he had a, a bucket of paste in, in one hand and he had to literally go out and put the proclamation on the walls. And you, in your line of work, will know that there's a 1916 proclamation that hangs in Leinster House. Yeah. That is Sean T. O'Kelly's proclamation. That's his own one. Wow. And he was given the task I of, didn't know that. Yeah, he was called to go around the city basically and paste this thing up, which for a councillor, <laughs> you think they would have given yeah. up something else to do. But Sean T.'s job basically was to go around town and post this thing up everywhere One yeah, which, says, which is an important thing to do because then is. if you have this idea of, of Pierce or whoever else standing outside the GPO and announcing it to the world but unless you're there to literally hear it it's an yeah, irrelevance there's no like hashtag proclamation you know, <laughs> if you wanted to read the proclamation and the papers weren't going to be printed yeah. you have to go out and see it so and the only place you could see it then was by someone going out and pasting it to a wall For somewhere. a few days anyway. And, and one historian says, from Princess Street he emerged into O'Connell Street, pasting as he went, copies on the pillars of the GPO, the plinths of statues, shop fronts, and even one on the gatepost uh, of Trinity College. But he had a good sense of history, Sean, and he actually went away from the fighting and he posted three copies. 
he wanted to preserve three copies uh-huh. uh, and only one of them the one he sent to his mum's house that's the only one that actually arrived uh, a week later the postman delivers this thing uh, in the door but that was a genius idea wasn't it to yeah to, to make sure there was a few that would survive at, any battle at least one would come through the fighting so then fitting I suppose for someone who sticks a proclamation on the gates of Trinity he's eventually elected 1918 uh, to the Westminster Parliament for the College Green constituency they'll never let them forget <laughs> on the other side of the gates Trinity did yes. a unionist but Chanty became a member of parliament, which is just extraordinary. And he spent most of the revolution somewhere else. You know, he was in Paris, where they were kind of carving up the new future of Europe after the war, yeah. trying to get our, our argument in. He even meets a Pope in Rome, which is amazing. You know, and he discusses the Irish question with the Pope uh, in yeah. Rome. Don't, don't suppose he's having a chat with the Pope standing on a chair, uh, no. <laughs> try, trying to scrabble out a few bits of Squailga uh, to whichever Italian was in the job at the time. Um, later on, uh, O'Kelly is involved in the foundation of a new party and ultimately that's where the long journey towards him becoming a presidential nominee starts. Yeah, he's kind of, he's, he's uh, anti-treaty but he's kind of delusioned and he comes to the same conclusion as, as De Valera, Lamas and others. Look, we have to play ball with this state whether we, whether we like it or not. So he travels to the US to kind of drum up Irish American support for for that new idea, that De Valerian idea, which is which is Fianna Fáil. But when he's elected president, he's, he's basically the Fianna Fáil candidate. He's put forward by Fianna Fáil. Yeah, uh, it's amazing footage. I mean, they bring him around the city in a horse-drawn carriage that had previously belonged to Queen Alexandra. So <laughs> we were we were done with one monarchy, but we were, we were we were still open to the hand-me-downs of another. And yeah, I mean, when you think about it, this guy is the first president internationally recognised as a full head of state when we proclaim a republic uh, in, in, in 1949. So it's no, no, small, no yeah. small achievement. I, I imagine just by, by, for convenience that if he ended up in Queen Alexandra's carriage, it's because that was probably staying out in the Viceregal Lodge. Yes. It was just the, the nearest available <laughs> carriage uh, yeah. for him to go through. Um, interestingly as well, not only was O'Kelly the, the president at the time that we at least declared ourselves a republic, I know it, there, there's contentions that we were one beforehand anyway, he was also the first Duke de Ron to, to visit the world's other great republic, he, to, to go to Washington. He went in the late 1950s. And actually it's unusual enough even now for Irish presidents to find themselves in the US because mm. every every Patrick's Day for the, the bowl of shamrock you've been there to see it yeah. uh, it's the Taoiseach who goes which says a lot about Irish politics but he went as, as, as Uke Duran in the late 1950s Eisenhower was in the White House he speaks to both houses that's really important you know the, the, the politics between Ireland and America post World War II Aaron Grace you know, America was deeply unhappy with what they regarded as going back to the beginning of the show, you know, Irish neutrality. Yeah. I would make the point, actually, look, America was neutral in the war until they were attacked. You know, <laughs> for all their criticisms yeah, of, of Irish neutrality, America had done its best to stay out of World War II as well. But it's an extraordinary journey, isn't it? You know, for a, a working class dub, son of a bootmaker, as we said at the start, standing on a chair shouting at people in Drumcondra in 1907. And now you're speaking before the US House of Congress and President Eisenhower in the late 50s. Uh, quite the journey. Uh, Sean T. O'Kelly uh, became president on this day, uh, June the 18th, the story told with typical aplomb uh, by Donald Fallon, <laughs> the author of uh, the Community Books and many other things, including Three Castles Burning, A History of Dublin and Twelve Streets, the Easton's Book of the Year for 2022, still available in all good bookshops. Uh, pro- not, not on his first print run at this stage, so cert- <laughs> certainly available uh, in all those bookshops. Uh, his podcast, Three Castles Burning, about Dublin history, also available anywhere you get your audio online. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.